We're two weeks into Brexit now, and apparently one of the ravens has left the Tower of London, which everyone is predicting is a signifier of doom. I, I want to take you back to your time when you were the BBC's Europe correspondent in Brussels. Um, so you were there for several years, and you must have got a sense then of the direction of travel as far as the UK was concerned and the rest of Europe. Tell us what, what your memories of those years in Brussels were. My memories of, of covering the EU are mixed, uh, frankly. Uh, I think we, we Brits, whether we were journalists or, or indeed um, the, the nation state, we often were either on our own or in a small group of countries that were trying to put the brakes on or trying to slow down um, some of the integrationist impulses that were so apparent in the European Union. But, you know, it wasn't just a question of Brits being characterized as negative. I, I do recall that the expertise of the Brits was really valued inside the machinery of the European Union. And indeed, the the, the instincts that the British government had to focus on efficiency and economics and to be very skeptical of the, the more idealistic political um, ambitions for the European Union, you know, in, in, in some ways it meant the European Union did get quite a lot of stuff done in a practical sense. Um, and of course, we were huge drivers of the single market. Some people think that the movement for Brexit was motivated by a backlash against globalisation and the effect of, that globalisation had on our manufacturing industry, on our extractive industries within, within the UK, and that it linked up with the whole theme of you know, the left behinds, particularly those you know, in, in, in the northeast, the northwest of this country. So if that is the case and we're, we're able to sort of combat globalisation and its potentially Ill, Ill effects on our own, what do you think the answer might be? I mean, what, what could we do that those freedoms now, now bring us to make the life of those who haven't had such a great time over the last two to three decades better? There is now a real challenge for those in control of the government, those advocates of the sunlit uplands that Brexit would deliver, because the question now is how and when? Uh, and they're not going to be easy questions to answer. You said something, I think, in, in the question about, you know, how Britain alone could combat some of the adverse effects of globalization. I, I, I'm not sure Britain alone can do very much in the 21st century world. We're all so interconnected now. Uh, in the most literal ways, interconnected um, digitally, interconnected economically, interconnected politically. Uh, the Britons, you know, yes, we've left the European Union. We are no longer member of that club, but we're still going to be dealing with them. And in our dealings with other countries too, our financial sector still remains very powerful and strong. But we, for the with the best will in the world, are not uh, terrific at manufacturing. Germany is terrific at manufacturing, and they export huge amounts of goods to China. Are we, because of Brexit, going to be able to deliver a manufacturing sector that can compete with the Germans in terms of winning new markets in China? 
Well, it's an interesting notion, but I see no sign right now from the top of government to the realities in, in those in post-industrial areas of the UK that you were talking about, that that is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, and we don't find new economic avenues to go down, then there is going to be a real question for this government about the whole promise made that Brexit would come with beneficial effects for those neglected, uh, alienated parts of the country. The levelling up agenda was tied to the post-Brexit world in the UK. Let's see if it happens. Now, Stephen, if you and I were kind of junior members of a team at McKinsey or Bain at the moment, and we were sort of given the task of assessing the prospects for UK PLC over the next 10 to 20 years and coming up with a report, I suppose we do a sort of SWOT analysis. Now, I was wondering on the old soft power thing, whether you think that we've maybe been underestimating the extent to which we have that sort of power across the world. I mean, you're probably recognised more in Jakarta, Cairo, Santiago than you are when you walk down the streets in Islington. The sort of reach of one key British brand, which is the BBC, which is that for sure I'm much better known in Harare and Lagos than I am in Redditch or Wolverhampton. Uh, And interestingly, I do get recognised from time to time in London, but it's almost always uh, by people fairly newly arrived in this country, you know, who grew up uh, speaking English and watching or listening to the BBC in their home country and loving the journalism that we do on Hard Talk. And, and so I don't want to just sort of blow the trumpet of the BBC as an important and, and still, uh, you know, strong element of British soft power, because I have a vested interest. There's no point doing that. But soft power more generally... And, and in particular, Britain's strength with its language, which, you know, by default is still the world's number one uh, international language, but also our knowledge economy. The stra- you know, just think even in these COVID times of the incredible work done by British scientists, sometimes in collaboration with others, sometimes, you know, in their own campuses here in the UK. But British science has really done a great job. Um, at the forefront of the effort to to tackle COVID, come up with vaccines. British universities remain some of the most attractive to the best foreign students across the world in all sorts of uh, knowledge-based sectors of our economy. We, we do fantastically well. The knowledge economy is one of our greatest strengths. Now, you did a really, a really interesting interview with Alan Rusperger, who edited The Guardian for many years. And inevitably, you talked about media and fake news and accuracy and truth-telling. It seems to me at the point we're at at the moment, it's more important than, than, than ever that the people who do try and go out there and present an objective view of what is going on in the world need to sort of step up and try and persuade those who are simply getting their information via social media outlets in those notorious echo chambers chosen by algorithm. They're in even more need of bringing them, you know, back to the centre, if you like. And I'm not just talking about Trumpists and people on the right. The power of social media uh, encouraging 
uh, a, a more polarized debate and a, a much more difficult sort of media environment for ordinary people now to figure out what they can trust and what they can't. And, and fake news, you know, has become a phenomenon that we are all too familiar with in, in many different parts of the world, not just in the United States. And Actually, I was listening to something um, that one of America's very best, most interesting historians, uh, Timothy Snyder, was saying uh, just actually earlier today, where he was saying that, you know, if one looks at a phenomenon like the assault on the Capitol and the, the, the belief systems that have uh, grown, uh, you know, almost um, uh, without real ability to, to, to control the spread of misinformation. He said one of the key aspects of this is that our, our media landscape has changed in a very negative way. We, get, we have much less local news, and this would apply to the United Kingdom, but it's very, very obvious in the United States. Um, the, the notion of local reporters who are invested in by local news organizations that are able to turn a profit uh, and that they are the ones who hold local officials to account, tell stories about things that matter to people, about perhaps you know polluted water supplies or uh, a dodgy deal done to allow a tower block to be built with you know cladding that's flammable. All of these sort of really nitty gritty local stories that are all about accountability, transparency, and give people faith that the system works. They no longer are there. That whole landscape has shifted. And what we have instead are media organizations devoted to opinion and to polarized debate, much less so in the UK thus far, thank God, but it's increasingly the way in the United States. And the net result of that is that, you know, it, it, it's a direct connection to, to the toxic politics we've seen expressed. In, in the last few what, days. What do you think is coming down the line for big tech? Because that's something that we've looked at a lot um, in the course of these Stiefel podcasts over the last couple of years about, um, you know, artificial intelligence and the whole mm. ethical question surrounding big tech. And it, it looks like over the last two weeks, they've really gone very quickly onto the back foot. I mean, I think, you know, things were moving against them anyway, but... Rather than seeing that as, you know, something suggesting big tech's in trouble, it, it, it actually tells us that big tech is more powerful, perhaps, than we even realized. Think about Donald Trump for a second. You know, throughout his four-year presidency, the, one of the things that has been most important to him as a political tool, and not, not just you know, a sort of sideshow, but central to his connection to his base and to the American people has been Twitter and his use of social media. So all of the political movements against him couldn't really change him, nor indeed could, could affect his ability to reach his base and, and to, you know, influence the direction of America. But when tech firms led by Twitter and Facebook chose to close him down, suddenly Donald Trump is neutralized. A lot of Donald Trump's power ebbed away from him the moment that those two big tech corporations decided that they no longer would offer him a platform. There's room for people to say, my God, what kind of world are we living in when 
corporations whose you know motive ultimately is is profit can influence the political debate and can wield such power with no real accountability as we would see it in our democratic system in the united states the first amendment says you have a right to free expression but it doesn't say that uh, you know a media social media platform has a duty to give you um a, a platform if you are spouting stuff that they regard as beyond the pale you know that that, that a private publisher has the right not to publish your words so i understand the the blocking of trump you know as something that twitter and facebook thought about i think one can understand that but what i think is more interesting and problematic is amazon's decision to deprive this um sort of right-wing alternative Twitter, a new social, newish social media platform called Parler. Now that is more problematic to me. Not that I ever used Parler, and I can't imagine if I did use Parler, I'd find many like-minded people on it. But nonetheless, to close down an entire sort of um, community, uh, an information community, because Amazon decided that too many of its users were peddling uh, an ideology that it didn't like in the wake of the assault on the capital. That, to me, is potentially dangerous. And it's a conversation that's hardly even begun, has it, really, if we're being honest. I think there's a sense out there, both in Brussels and in, in, in Washington, that it's all happened so rapidly, and indeed that it's moving faster than than regulators can cope with, that they don't really know precisely what to do at the moment. And I think there must, if they're being responsible, be, be a degree of anxiety that they could end up doing things that would be detrimental to all our interests, surely. Well, I'll tell you what's interesting, uh, you know, and it goes back to the beginnings of this conversation, talking about Brexit and what it will mean and how we'll relate to the Europeans in the longer run. There clearly is a, a mindset in Brussels which is determined to challenge big tech on a range of issues from, you know, how much tax they pay um, to their monopolistic practices. And we saw it with Microsoft quite a number of years ago now, where the EU was in the forefront of, of efforts to take on Microsoft when it was felt that it was acting as an unacceptable monopoly in Europe. And I suspect the Europeans uh, in the Commission are already thinking in great detail about how they're going to move forward with their determined plan to tame, to a certain extent, Facebook and Google. But what are we going to do when we look at the Europeans taking on big tech in that way? Are we going to think, you know what, there's some real sense behind what the Europeans are doing. And we don't want to live in a world where actually more power rests in Mark Zuckerberg's hands than does in Boris Johnson's. In five years' time, when you're waking up and smelling the coffee and it's gone kind of really, all things considered, relatively well for the UK... Where will we be in terms of our relationship with Europe, in terms of our relationship with the United States, and also, very importantly, Asia and especially China? 
we're still going to be closely entwined with our European friends and partners, as Boris Johnson insists on always calling them. The, 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 the trick will be in finding that sweet spot where we still, frankly, pretty much, um, you know, choose a Brexit over the next five years that allows us to continue the free trade, allows us to be close to Europe economically, but just that new element of nimbleness that whether it be in the, the tech economy, whether it be in other services and, and the financial sector allows us to do things a little differently and draw in new investment and forge new relationships and markets around the world. We're not going to completely trash the last five decades of economic sort of relations with Europe and, and suddenly become entwined with the Chinese economy in ways that we can't imagine right now. I just don't think that's going to happen, least of all, because, you know, the Chinese actually, as we said earlier in the conversation, still are minded to focus on the European Union, not on Brexit Britain. I don't think that's a depressing answer. It, it's it's actually there are things that we can do better and differently outside of the EU, but they're not going to be so radical, so dramatic that we we totally revolutionise who we are and how we see the world. How, I mean, how long do you think it will take, sort of passionate Remainers, to, for want of a better expression, to get over it? Because I, I think, if anything, at the moment the feelings are even more raw than they were in sort of, you know, October, November. The reality of it is hitting home. And I think those who felt terribly strongly about it um, back in 2016, if anything, they've doubled down and, you know, they're, they're, they're members of the resistance almost, aren't they? Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, is a, an instinctive feeling and an emotional feeling, but it, I don't think it really goes anywhere. And, and political realities will, I think, require the, the leaders of, of the opposition parties, the non-Brexit parties, uh, to acknowledge that for a generation, you know, it goes back to this notion of, you know, once in a lifetime, once in a generation votes, that there is not going to be, I don't think, in, in the next um, 15 to 20 years, any meaningful prospect of a political leader who wants power in the UK saying, you know what, I think we should revisit the whole Brexit thing and we should have another referendum. I, I, I just don't see that happening. So those diehard Remainers who are finding it very hard to accept that this has happened and are plotting ways to reverse it as soon as possible. I, I think that is going to, frankly, be a one-way ticket to insanity for the next few years. I, I would advise them strongly to invest their feelings in other directions. 